0: the event organizer had to interrupt the concert three times to get people to sit down. Even though (laughs) it was Pearl Jam, (laughs) I think it was very different from anybody else's first Pearl Jam concert experience.
1: I'm Nick Harcourt and we're on a little break this week here on The Sound of Success and so we're going to bring you a Greatest Hits episode, so to speak, featuring our favorite responses to a question I ask all of our guests. What was your first concert? Now these answers are far ranging from Kedrick Lamar at Governor's Ball in New York to David Bowie at the Tower Theater in Philadelphia to a Pearl Jam concert in Malaysia that the police kept interrupting. We're hearing about first-time shows finance and business titans went to as we lads and lasses, including tales from Barry Redholtz, Bob Basani, Eric Balchunas, Priya Dewan, Bethany McLean, Drew Voris, and Tyrone Ross. Consider this your ticket in, and please, no flash photography. First up, we've got Barry Ritholtz, who's founder and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. And he talks about growing up on Long Island in the 70s, where he caught Chicago and Black Sabbath as a teenager. And by the way, those guys had a little known band opening up that you may have heard of.
2: I think the first one was Chicago. at um, So as when you're in like eighth or ninth grade, Nassau Coliseum was a 20-minute drive, not even from the house. So my parents would drop me off at a concert and pick me up. It wasn't until like, I don't know, 10th grade, I was allowed to take the train into the city to go see shows at Madison Square Garden. So there were a bunch of that five-year period, like, let's call it 75 to 79. um, I saw a lot of great shows uh, at those venues. I can't count how many times I saw Jethro Tull or Boston or, you know, go down the list. I missed, I'm, I always kicked myself about missing little place called My Father's Place in Roslyn, 20 minutes from where I lived back then. And in my senior year, I missed seeing the police play a, a show there. It's like a 200 person venue. And then I saw Black Sabbath at the Garden and this is one of those shows that just stays with you. This little up and coming unknown band opened for them named Van Halen mm-hmm. and blew the roof off the dump. Wow. It was, it was great.
1: Black Sabbath from my, uh, my hometown, Birmingham, over, yeah. over in England. There was no uh, uh, animals getting their heads bitten off at that concert. I hope.
2: I think Ozzy was pre biting heads off period. The seventies the yeah you know, Paranoid and Iron Man, and that whole run of albums was, he was still relatively, you know, I don't wanna say sober, but, you know, rock star sober.
1: Here's CNBC anchor, Bob Bassani, talking about the rush of seeing David Bowie back in 1972 on his Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars tour, and the way that it changed Bob forever.
3: The Ziggy Stardust tour. David Bowie became famous in Philadelphia in 1972. It, it's hard to describe the impact that Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders of Mars had on my generation. We didn't call it glam rock. That was a name people put on this later on. People put these labels on the everything later on when, after they figured it out. But to a 15-year-old in 1971, T-Rex and David Bowie were revolutionary. My four or five friends in the basement of Joe Furt's house in 1971, when Electric Warrior came out, we just listened to that, and it sounded so sexy, so cool to us, and so different than what the Who were doing, that it sounded fresh and new to us, and it sounded a little rebellious. And so I, me, and my three friends went to see Bowie, and it was December '72. At the Tower Theater in Philadelphia. And it was four of guys. We couldn't even imagine asking any girls. That's how dorky we were. We wore our platform shoes. Yes. And we stood on the handrests at the tower theater. On, not on the seats, on the handrest, standing up. And you know, when Suffragette City, I mean, he came out and he had a, this outfit with the concentric rings on it, and two people came up and tore it in half in the middle of Suffragette. Wham, bam, thank you, man. I mean, the place went nuts. And I kept was thinking to myself, this is what the apocalypse is going to look like <laughs> exactly like this. And Mick Ronson was just swaling away. He was, I mean, it's so indelibly etched in my mind as a big moment. Then a year or two later, he came back and he did a series of concerts that came to be known as David Live at the Tower. And we were all bitterly disappointed because he had fired Mick Ronson and the Spiders from Mars and was about to go into the phase that you would associate with the Philly soul sound with young Americans. And we didn't like it. To us, this new thing he, he was trying to do, it wasn't apparent to us. And he was trying to sound a lot like Frank Sinatra. He was coked out of his mind. He you was crooning on coke. I mean, you could just see it. He, he was just different person altogether yeah. than he had been two years before. And we kind of felt like what happened? We wanted to hear Diamond Dogs. Diamond Dogs was great to us. And he was in Aladdin Sane, but he was transitioning out and it didn't, and I, even to this day, I hate that album. I have a hard time listening to it because I knew what I was doing when I was there. I know we were all looking at each other and saying, where's freaking David Bowie? Sure. You know He was becoming a great artist. He was changing,
1: like Dylan, he was changing. He was we transitioning, were- yes. And obviously, as we all know, throughout his career, there's, there's so many different incarnations. You know, I, I love the fact that you were in Philadelphia and I was in Birmingham in England. We're about the same age and we had exactly the same experience the first time we saw David Bowie because I, I saw him on top of the Puffs, which is the British charts. Right. And I, I was sitting there watching this guy come out in makeup and uh, high heels or stacked shoes, satin jackets, and the same with T-Rex. And uh, both of those artists, squeegeed my third eye and all of a sudden the world changed as you mentioned as a 13 year old kid and you've grown up with traditional music and restrictions or whatever and then somebody comes along and just goes wow it's a whole new world
3: yeah
1: well i love that phrase squeegee my third eye Squeegeed my third is eye that, is that did you i want to use that I, line I, is that well, your line i didn't steal it from anybody but maybe i heard it somewhere i don't know but i i love be, that
3: line That's exactly what happened. That's very prosaic. I'm going to attribute that to you. But yes, that's Um, exactly what happened. And not until I probably saw the Ramones in 77 did I actually feel different. They also kind of changed. Blondie and the Ramones, another separate issue, but they kind of change my world completely yeah yeah and it's hard to do that I mean you know rock and roll the problem with something like rock is there's sonic limitations there's only so much you can do with the basic format it's hard to like be really surprised after a while this is one of the problems jazz has as you know yeah Uh, and so it, it was quite impressive they were able to pull that off it's fairly late in rock by 1971 or 72.
1: Right. And as you mentioned, 76, 77, everything started changing with the punk movement that was coming in. And then obviously the pop punk, that, movement that came after that. It was the clash for me that changed it. I think I was stuck in rock and prog rock. And then the punk thing was starting. I didn't really understand it. And then I heard London calling. I'm like, I'm in. Yeah. Phony Beatlemania has bitten the dust. Exactly before Vanity Fair writer and financial journalist Bethany McLean wrote the 2001 Watershed article for Fortune magazine that led to the collapse of Enron, well, she was listening to classic rock and metal in her hometown of Hibbings, Minnesota. Here, Bethany tells us about her first show as a teenager and later about the mythic story of her hometown's hero, Bob Dylan, being booed off the stage after his first performance.
4: So I don't remember the first album that I bought to my, with my own money, but the first concert I went to was Brian Adams. And I remember it was a big deal because the town where I grew up, nobody came. And it was pretty far away from anything. And so it was like a two and a half hour drive to Duluth, which was the nearest big city. And Brian Adams came to Duluth, I think, must have been when I was a freshman in high school. Um, and it was when Summer of 69 was a big song. And so that song still makes me nostalgic.
1: And did you go because of that song? You you were in love with that song, and you were like, "Let's go see, let's go see this guy."
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bunch of us. Um, somebody's mother drove us.
1: <laughs> How old were you?
4: I must have been thirteen.
1: What was your feeling seeing live music like that for the first time?
4: Oh, um, amazing! It's just an entirely different experience which was a lot then. I don't know if I'd ever seen that big a crowd before. Um, the music itself, the way music is transformed by the crowd, the way music is entirely different when it's played live. It, it has echoes of the song that you heard on the radio, but that one is almost, uh, um, one is like a blurred, blurred version makes it sound pejorative. It's not, it's just different incarnations of the same piece of music. It's funny because growing up in Hibbing, despite the fact that Dylan was from Hibbing, because it was such a heavy metal culture, it wasn't, he wasn't celebrated. You might think as a result of that would all grow up living to Listening to Bob Dylan all the time because it's not like there was that much else going on in hippie Minnesota. You have, to, you have to celebrate what 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 there is, sure. and they do now, but not but but not at the time when I was when I was growing up. I didn't I big, I barely even knew who who Dylan was. And there is a possibly apocryphal story about him about how he performed in the high school when he was in school there, and people were really disrespectful of him and had threw things at him on the stage because because they thought he was such a terrible singer. Singer, that he couldn't possibly be allowed upon the stage. Right. And- I love that story, both if true, what it says about talent and when it's recognized, but also that it may not be true. Some years ago, I was back in Hibbing, visiting, and they had a Bob Dylan exhibit at the Iron Ore Museum, (laughs) quite a combination of of, of things. And there was a wall put up recounting where people could affix their notes to uh, this particular story and say their memories of this story. And there were notes ranging from, I was there and this never happened, people in this town would never be that rude of course that didn't happen to I was there and how horrible it is that we treated somebody who would become a legend like Bob Dylan so it is also a testament in a way to the slipperiness of memory yes or maybe the suggestibility of memory is a better word than the slipperiness
1: speaking of artists getting booed off the stage here's etf.com editor-in-chief Drew Voris talking about his first concert The Police where a guy named Tom Petty opened the show and it didn't go too well
5: well, my first concert was the police, um, and this kid named Tom Petty opened for him, and basically almost got booed off the stage because he came in. Tom Petty came in, just pretty much him and a guitar, and people were waiting for the police, and they were huge at the time. And I had heard of Tom Petty, and I think "Heartbreaker" was a song out at the time. But I, you know, I felt sorry for him. <laughs> and today I look back and I think, man, that guy, you know, he gutted it out. And this is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And they basically boot him off the stage. And, and at the time, I was really felt bad for him. I found out, well, that happens all the time. Man, I said, that's a tough way to make a living. And then of course, the police come out and the place went nuts. And it was, you know, a stupendous show. So that, that was sort of, you know, I had to go do that again. And so then I started and started, you know, once I got 16 and drive and had friends, we started going down toward the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon University where were some clubs and you could see 18 and over clubs and get in. They weren't really checking IDs like they do today. And we saw bands here and there. In fact, I saw R.E.M. right as they were coming out, and so that, it was fun. Now to realize that, like I used to go to football games with my dad, I used to go to Steeler games. Now I could go with my friends to go see these bands I was hearing on the radio. And I know that seems kind of antiquated today, but at the time, man, that was just eye opening that I could I had this album and I could go see this band that was coming to my town. So that was really my hobby as a kid. I love sports, but. You know, music was, and my brothers and sisters were all into it too. So that was really important to have that around me and have music around. So I didn't feel like I was an outcast in my family because I was listening to The Doors. I have to say, my dad did not like The Doors. He loved The Beatles because The Doors was a screaming madman. And I'm sure he had read about him at the time, mm-hmm. but he let me listen to him. He just didn't want to hear it. He didn't want it loud. And that seemed like a fair trade-off at the time.
1: So it's interesting you talk about the early music you were into uh, was what we now call classic rock, obviously. Uh, in the 70s, it was being made then, but now, all sure. these years later, it fits into the classic rock format. Tom Petty, who you said opened up for the police at the time, was considered a new wave artist. Although, he was, you know, perhaps not opening for, for the police. Talk a little bit about that shift in music for you, that time when things went from the music that you'd heard originally from Brothers and, and, and Sisters, what we now think of as classic rock, to the Sex Pistols who just sort of kicked the doors down and allowed this whole new wave of, of music to, to come through, punk originally, obviously, and then new wave bands like uh, The Police who probably straddled that a little bit.
5: I had to get introduced to it. Right. So well, that was always the hard part for me because of where I was at. And when Tom Petty came along, you're right. He was considered new wave at the time. And I think that's why I felt sorry for him because I wanted to see what this guy was about. And I didn't really get to see him. But, you know, there's a the time of Elvis Costello, too. But Elvis Costello also kind of dipped back into, you know, he wasn't really punky, but he, w- he was a rebel. And then I think I saw the Sex Pistols on TV news. They were coming to America or something and I, I saw them and I was like, Holy cow, what is this all about? So I really started looking to find out what this is about. And I was telling you, I could find New York radio stations. I, I started hearing the Ramones and then I, I, I started reading about the Ramones. I'm like, this is like nothing I've ever seen or heard before. And my friends and I started really getting into this. And this was something that, no, you know, my brothers and sisters didn't know about. Uh, and then when they started seeing punk, they were like, this is garbage and you know and <laughs> they had the same reactions as my parents did <laughs> and we were like well there's some there's something here and be, it was because it was something so different and at the you know, when you're a teenager you know it was our rebel thing it was our rebel soundtrack um and i remember at our high school prom we wanted to hire a punk band called car sickness uh and the administration was like there's no way there's absolutely and we had stocked our the social board, because we wanted, we wanted to put a puck band on for our prom, and they wouldn't do it. And I always thought to myself, what, you know, come on, man. Um, but looking back, I can see where parents back in the day when Sex Pistols are running around the country and a band called Car Sickness is coming to school, you know, I think calmer heads prevailed probably
1: yeah it's funny when you look back on that stuff now obviously i was a teenager almost young man when the sex pistols came out and in the uk they just horrified everybody it was certainly lock up <laughs> not just your daughters but lock up you lock up anything that you care about because the sex pistols are, are, are around but at the same time they, as I mentioned earlier on, sort of kicked the doors open for a whole bunch of new music that came through in the late 70s and into the 80s. Let me ask you about dancing. I'm presuming that as a guy who went to see bands like The Police, you like to dance a little bit. What are the albums or artists that you uh, return to when, when you feel like dancing?
5: Well, I, th- I think punk obviously was a reaction toward disco. So when I was sort of in grade school, you were inundated with disco. Um, and disco was cool at the time. And, you know, John Travolta, right, and Saturday Night Light Fever. Uh, So it was very cool to be that. And then it suddenly was very uncool to be that. So in that, again, I think the dancing, to disco dance, I can remember my sisters trying to teach us how to to disco, right? And and a couple years later, someone's teaching me to slam dance, right? So from the music to the dancing, there's a complete rebel against it. And instead of learning disco moves, you didn't have to learn anything. You just had the guts to go in there. Um, And again, that made no sense to my brothers and sisters. It made no sense to my parents. But fortunately, they gave me the freedom. Don't get arrested was pretty much the bottom line. It was fun. It was thrilling. And it was something that, to be honest, at the time, I thought would go away. I I, I didn't see punk lasting. I thought, thought, you know, people are going to hate this thing to death, literally. And today, you know, the Ramones, I can't imagine what these punk catalogs are worth anymore right? The pistols, the Ramones. I mean, it's just amazing what they were building in a short time and the resistance they found from every corner. And then today, you know, other people that you've interviewed, uh, I know Eric Alcunas and there's others you know, those are the people we grew up on. And I think a lot of us have still keep a little bit of rebelness into us because if you have to look back on your life and you think about those days, you know, we were standing out a little bit. We were taking a little bit of a stance we were told to take certain t-shirts off at school, but we knew we were going to do that. We wanted to see if the, we could get away with it. And we usually couldn't, but those were times, that was the way we tried to be a rebel without a cause. and We had a soundtrack with it. Well, my first concert was the police um, and this kid named Tom Petty opened for him and basically almost got booed off the stage because he came in, Tom Petty came in and just pretty much him and a guitar and people were waiting for the police and they were huge at the time. And I had heard of Tom Petty, and I think Heartbreaker was a song out at the time. But I, you know, I felt sorry for him. <laughs> and today I look back and I think, man, that guy, you know, he gutted it out. And this is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And they basically boot him off the stage. And, and, and at the time, I was really felt bad for him. I found out, well, that happens all the time. Man, I said, that's a tough way to make a living. And then of course, the police come out and the place went nuts. And it was, you know, a stupendous show. So that, that was sort of, you know... I had to go do that again. And so then I started and started you know, once I got 16 and drive and had friends. We started going down toward the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon University where were some clubs and you could see 18 and over clubs and get in. They weren't really checking IDs like they do today. And we saw bands here and there. In fact, I saw REM right as they were coming out. And so that it was fun now to yeah. realize that like I used to go to football games with my dad. I used to go to Steeler games. Now I could go with my friends to go see these bands I was hearing on the radio and I know that seems kind of antiquated today, but at the time, man, that was just eye opening that I could, I had this album and I could go see this band that was coming to my town. So that was really my hobby as a kid. I love sports, but you know, music was, and my brothers and sisters were all into it too. So that was really important to have that around me and have music around. So I didn't feel like I was an outcast in my family because I was listening to The Doors. I have to say, my dad did not like The Doors. He loved The Beatles because The Doors was a screaming madman. And I'm sure he had read about him at the time, Mm -hmm. but he let me listen to him. He just didn't want to hear it. He didn't want it loud. And that seemed like a fair trade off at the time.
1: So it's interesting you talk about the early music you were into uh, was what we now call classic rock, obviously. Uh, In the 70s, it was being made then, but now, all these years later, it fits into the classic rock format. Tom Petty, who you said opened up for the police, at the time was considered a new wave artist, although. He was. perhaps not opening for, for the police. Talk a little bit about that shift in music for you, that time when things went from the music that you'd heard originally from Brothers and, and, and Sisters, what we now think of as classic rock, to the Sex Pistols who just sort of kicked the doors down and allowed this whole new wave of, of music to, to come through. Punk originally, obviously, and then new wave bands like uh, The Police who probably straddled that a little bit.
5: I had to get introduced to it. Right. So well, that was always the hard part for me because of where I was at. And when Tom Petty came around, you're right. He was considered new wave at the time. And I think that's my why I felt sorry for him because I wanted to see what this guy was about. and I didn't really get to see him. But, you know, there's a the time of Elvis Costello, too. But Elvis Costello also kind of dipped back into, you know, he wasn't really punky, but he, w- he was a rebel. And then I think I saw the Sex Pistols on TV news. That they were coming to America or something and I, I saw them and I was like, Holy cow, what is this all about? So I really started looking to find out what this is about. And I was telling you, I could find New York radio stations. I, I started hearing the Ramones and then I, I, I started reading about the Ramones. I'm like, this is like nothing I've ever seen or heard before. And my friends and I started really getting into this. And this was something that, no, you know, my brothers and sisters didn't know about. Uh, and then when they started seeing punk, they were like, this is garbage. And, you know, and they had the same reactions as my parents did. (laughs) And we were like, well, there's some, there's something here. And it it was because it was something so different. And at the, you know, when you're a teenager, you know, it was our rebel thing. It was our rebel soundtrack. Um, And I remember at our high school prom, we wanted to hire a punk band called Car Sickness. Uh, And the administration was like, there's no way. There's absolutely, and we had stocked our, the social board because we wanted wanted to put a fuck band on for our prom and they wouldn't do it and I always thought to myself what you know come on man Um, but looking back I can see where parents back in the day when sex pistols are running around the country and a band called Carson sickness is coming to school you know I think calmer heads prevailed probably yeah it's
1: funny when you look back on that stuff now obviously i was a teenager almost young man when the sex pistols came out and in the uk they just horrified everybody it was certainly lock up <laughs> not just your daughters but lock up you lock up anything that you care about because the sex pistols are, are around but at the same time they, as I mentioned earlier on, sort of kicked the doors open for a whole bunch of new music that came through in the late 70s and into the 80s. Let me ask you about dancing. I'm presuming that as a guy who went to see bands like The Police, you like to dance a little bit. What are the albums or artists that you uh, return to when, when you feel like dancing?
5: Well, I, th- I think punk obviously was a reaction toward disco. So when I was sort of in grade school, you were inundated with disco. Um, and disco was cool at the time and, you know, John Travolta, right. And Saturday Night Light Fever. Uh, so it was very cool to be that. And then it suddenly was very uncool to be. That. So in that, again, I think the dancing to disco dance, I can remember my sister's trying to teach us how to, to disco. Right. And in a couple years later, someone's teaching me to slam dance. Right. So from the music to the dancing, there's a complete rebel against it. And instead of learning disco moves, you didn't have to learn anything. You just had the guts to go in there. Um, and again, that made no sense to my brothers and sisters. It made no sense to my parents. But fortunately, they gave me the freedom. Don't get arrested was pretty much the bottom line. It was fun. It was thrilling. And it was something that, to be honest, at the time I thought it would go away. I, I, I didn't see punk lasting. I thought, it, thought you know, people are going to hate this thing to death, literally. And today, you know, the Ramones. I can't imagine what these punk catalogs are worth anymore. Right? So the pistols, the Ramones. I mean, it's just amazing what they were building in a short time and the resistance they found from every corner. And then today, you know, other people that you've interviewed, uh, I know Eric Alcunas and there's others that, you know, those are the people we grew up on. And I think a lot of us have still keep a little bit of rebelness into us. Because if you have to look back on your life and you think about those days, you know, we were standing out a little bit. We were taking a little bit of a stance, We were told to take certain T-shirts off at school, but we knew we were going to do that. We wanted to see if we could get away with it. We usually couldn't. But those were times, that was the way we tried to be a rebel without a cause. and We had a soundtrack with it.
1: Tyrone Ross, CEO of On Ramp Invest, went to his first concert a little later in life. Here he tells us about the thrill of seeing Kendrick Lamar live at the Governor's Ball in New York City in 2013.
6: Now, I wasn't a big concert goer, if you could believe it, until recently. I wanna say, man, and say recently, within the last probably five or seven years or so. So the first one, man, that is a good question. What was my first concert? Oh man, I don't remember. But I do remember, again, it's the the ones that are vivid. I do remember my first festival concert. And that was uh, Governor's Ball. And I saw Kendrick Lamar live and it changed my life. Changed my life. Waited all day. It changed my life. And I had never been to a festival before, but everyone was amazing. But Kendrick Lamar headlined and it was like nothing I had ever seen. I was like, this is unreal. And then I just started going like on... (laughs) It was like concert crazy. I would saw Rihanna and I saw Jay-Z and Justin Timberlake. And there was a whole bunch that I'd seen, you know, up until that point. But that was the first festival I went to. And it was kind of like, all right, this is different. Live music was was definitely something that I wanted to see.
1: Let, let me ask you two questions that come out of that. First of all, Governor's Ball, that's in New York. Is that the one that's on Randall's Island, which yep. is that? weird little stadium yep. in between yep. the river and the freeway and and, and Yeah,
6: you know, absolutely. So special place yeah. in my heart cuz there's also a track there so I've run track meets at Randall's Island. Exactly. So to go back there and for that concert, it was it was unreal.
1: I remember going there years ago in the 90s, actually, when I was living in upstate New York, uh, we went down to see Pearl Jam. I'd never seen them. And I figured, you know, you should see this band because they're the band of the moment. And I remember going to this venue and being like, this has got to be about the weirdest venue I've ever been to. It's like an old rundown stadium, as you said, with a track and everything. And then the other thing is, what was it about Kendrick Lamar that? got you it was
6: because again I grew up a huge Michael Jackson fan right I love Michael Jackson and I I I will never forget like watching again I never got to see him live but watching his show the way he commanded a stage it was almost like he can get the crowd to do whatever he wanted and the way Kendrick almost like a maestro like he played the crowd and and they I forget what the number was, they said he spent some wild amount on the effects, like just for above and beyond their budget, he added all of these different elements to the show. And it was remarkable. Um, the way he orchestrated the show, the timing, the energy, the feel of of, and and the pace of how to show it was just it was wonderfully orchestrated. And again, if you look at any of his performances, you know, on TV or whatever, it's always really good. But that one particular performance, you knew you were watching something special. And even if you go Google now, like Kendrick Governors, like the response, you just knew you were watching something special. That performance was Unreal. I, I mean, people were just stunned. When he finished, he walked off. But it was just like, what did we just see? <laughs> right? And it was it was spectacular how he went through his catalog and gave it all up in that moment. It was unreal.
1: Up next, it's Eric Balchunas, who you heard Drew Varis mention a little earlier on. Eric is a Bloomberg columnist and co-host of the Bloomberg podcast Trillions. His first concert was with a band I hold close to my heart, and that's because, well, they're from my hometown of Birmingham, Duran Duran.
7: People always say, what's your first concert? I can't remember which one was first, but around the time I was 11 or 12, somewhere in there, I went to see Duran Duran. Mm. I asked to see Duran Duran. I was a huge fan of the videos, you know, when uh, he's running around in Hungry Like the Wolf. I just. The videos were cool. The sound was cool. And I went to that concert. I was probably, there was probably 20% guys there and I was yeah. into 20%. Yeah. It was a lot of screaming girls, but I love the show. And then um, I went to John Cougar before he was melon Camp is my dad was into that show and he brought me to that show. And one thing I remember about that one, which was cool is that he was like, you know, when Jack and Diane, when he says yeah. two kids that uh, grew up in the heartland, he said grew up in austin texas like he he personalized the lyric i thought that was pretty cool
1: no, and that, that was could, a good show too because you were in austin texas obviously. yeah we so were it, yeah
7: that's where i was sorry i was in austin at the time right and go to see the show and that would that really woke me up to the live show isn't the album right you're gonna get those different personal touches and imperfections and those are my t- first two memories of shows.
1: Were you listening to music though before that in the car or anything like that? Do you have any uh, musical memories of songs on the radio or being played in the house?
7: Yeah, sure. I still talk to my dad about this. My dad had recently got divorced. I think it was when I was nine or 10 and he went to live with his buddy and man, do they have a great record collection. And I would just scroll through the records. I remember ELO because those albums were amazing. They were for a kid. I mean, they had this whole thing and, it was like this spaceship inside and Mm -hmm. it was a very cool physical touch album where they've got all this artwork. I also remember the cars, the album that begins with since you've been gone, I love the cars and they had a couple of cars albums and they had Prince delirious. And I remember listening to that right before purple rain came out and then obviously they exploded then, but they were pretty good on their music. They had a lot of good, they had Bruce Springsteen. So I got a good education on good music early from my dad. And I do remember once he was like, he would put in Jimi Hendrix. Um, I forget which one, the one with the three of them are on there and they're, they're sort of, they're all three right there. And it's got Foxy lady yeah. and uh purple haze. And he played that a lot. And I thought that was a re- re- pretty good album. So I guess I picked up on this, but then I went on to, I went into pop. I got into some like hip hop and R and B in the eighties. I got into like Duran Duran pop music. So Um, I've definitely gotten into some different areas, but I think I had a good grounding from those early albums that were sitting at my dad's house.
1: I, I love the fact that you appreciating the tactile connection to the music by you know holding 12 inch pieces of cardboard that had things that folded out and amazing graphic design that is beginning to come back of course with the vinyl but we gave it up so easily didn't we when you think about it we we're like oh this is too much to carry around we'll take cassettes and then they were kind of not that good oh we'll take these little things around and then you, you lose all of that fantastic creative artwork and packaging, but it is beginning to come back a bit. And I'll, I'll come back to that in, in, in a moment and talk about the various formats that we've listened to music on. But uh, I love the fact that you mentioned Duran Duran and ELO, because they're both from my hometown in Birmingham, in England, as opposed to Birmingham. Um, and uh, yeah, man, Duran Duran, I mean, they had all those hot, Women in their videos. And if you're 12 or I was, I don't, maybe a couple of years older than you, maybe 20, and you're looking at those videos, you're like, I want to be in that group.
7: Yeah, Duran Duran also had an artistic touch. This was not the typical boy band, in my opinion. They were trying to do something that was creative and artistic. They had minor chords in their songs. They weren't just total fluff, in my opinion. And they had something that sounded somewhat postmodern. If you're in 85, Duran Duran sounds like the reflex. You don't even know what the words are about it it doesn't even make any sense and i kind of like that i like to be a little confused at first
2: right so that i was
7: drawn to them for for that reason too and then but yeah at the show when they showed the bass i think his name's john taylor they would the girls would scream at different levels depending on who they showed sure the one guy they barely screamed for it i felt bad for him
1: (laughs) who was the guy they didn't scream for it was the lead
7: guitarist i think he was a little on the shorter side
1: i think that was Um, andy taylor who's i I think that's it yeah. No relation to uh, John Taylor. But John yeah. Taylor got the most. Yeah.
7: Which I thought was interesting, too, because I was like, shouldn't the lead singer get the most? But anyway, yeah. this is so random, but very vivid memory, though. I will never forget that show.
1: And finally, here's Priya Dewan, a one-time label manager for the influential UK-based Warp Records and now VP of The Orchard and CEO of Gig Life Pro, which helps Western music industry members navigate the festival circuit and distribution in Asian markets. Now, most pop music was banned in Singapore, where she grew up, but she managed to snag a ticket to a rare Pearl Jam concert as a teenager, if only the cops hadn't shown up.
0: So ironically... My first concert was in middle school in Singapore and it was Pearl Jam.
1: Oh, wow. Okay.
0: Yeah. You know, like despite living halfway around the world and I'm never going to forget it because it was my friend Kim who just moved from somewhere in the middle of nowhere in the U S and I loved going to her house because in her pantry, I felt like Alice in Wonderland. I think they had like shipped a container of stuff from, from Costco and I had never seen a Costco before. <laughs> so I was like, why is this box of cereal so gigantic? You know? <laughs> I just love going over there. It was just, you know, like a, a whole Disneyland place. And we were in middle school and her sister, her older sister, who was I think a senior in high school at the time was our chaperone. And it was thrilling and exhilarating. And it also got interrupted like three or four times we had like police there from malaysia we had borrowed police from malaysia to make sure that like nothing got out of hand the event organizer had to interrupt the concert three times to get people to sit down even though <laughs> it was pearl jam <laughs> i think it was very different from anybody else's first pearl jam concert experience
1: you know i i, I only saw pearl jam live once and uh, it was in new york and all i can say is I have no idea how somebody could be stopping Pearl Jam from playing in the middle. Know, of that, right? It seems absolutely nuts. But, you know, right? a different audience, <laughs> obviously. I, I, I'm imagining you guys were happy with
0: whatever you could get. Oh, yeah. Especially in middle school. I mean, just yeah. be generally happy with any experiences you can get at that point. But Singapore as a whole was just like in high school. I remember the first indie Concert that we had was a double billing of of Coldplay and Travis. It's
1: mm, a good. One. And
0: yeah, and that was you know when when Yellow was the hit single, so Massive. it was still when yeah. they were emerging. But that was shocking to us. Like we never thought that that Travis and Coldplay would come to Singapore. You know, Japan got all the fun shows, but us over here could just wait wait for a Sting and, and nothing wrong with Sting. <laughs> I actually went to that concert and it was awesome
1: but <laughs> yeah, I get it. But more mainstream acts. Yes, yes. Well, clearly there was a promoter in Singapore who made it worth their while to, to swing by. So that must have been yeah, fun. Yeah,
0: it was.
1: Thanks for listening to this edition of The Sound of Success. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com.